This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. The date is Friday, June 19th, and today on the show we'll be talking about the lawsuit, the amended complaint that has become part of the public record in the Southern District of New York, as the City of Warren Police and Fire Retirement System, among others, have amended their complaint against WWE Inc., Vince McMahon, George Berrios, and Michelle Wilson. But first, a multitude of stories have appeared online alleging abuse and sexual misconduct against many people throughout the pro wrestling industry. Throughout today and yesterday, after allegations were raised against David Starr, many have been inspired to share their own stories in what is being called the Speaking Out movement. A number of allegations involve wrestlers under WWE contract. WWE's latest statement, quote, Individuals are responsible for their own actions. WWE has zero tolerance for matters involving domestic violence, child abuse, and sexual assault. Upon arrest for such misconduct, a WWE talent will be immediately suspended. Upon conviction for such misconduct, WWE talent will be immediately terminated. WWE's ability to find, suspend, or terminate a WWE talent will not be, however, limited or compromised in any manner in the event inconvertible evidence of such illegal misconduct is presented to WWE. With many of the incidents alleged to have happened within the United Kingdom independent wrestling scene, BBC's The Newsroom covered the story this morning. The hashtag speaking out has been trending in some countries. It concerns suspected abuse within the wrestling world. Dozens of young hopefuls, mostly women, have been detailing their allegations of abuse and sexual assault in the grassroots of the multi-million dollar professional wrestling industry. The Newsroom's Jonathan Savage reports. More than 70 wrestlers, promoters and trainers have now been identified on social media posts and more than 100 cases of abuse have been documented. They range from harassment to emotional abuse to rape. Just as teenage footballers dream of playing at the World Cup and budding actors picture the moment they accept their first Oscar, young wrestling fans often imagine themselves winning the world title in front of thousands of adoring spectators. But away from the riches and global spotlight of WWE, wrestlers often start their careers in small independent promotions and training schools, performing in front of hundreds at best. It's from here that the allegations of abuse have emerged. He's extremely tactical when he messages women. He uses things like feedback to slide into your DMs. I would go through stages of he's a creep to he's trying to look out for me. And I know this is nothing compared to what he has done to other girls. The head trainer used to slap my butt multiple times when my parents were gone. I was about 12 at the time. I had to shrug it off, feeling very uncomfortable. Once he came running up behind me. I was 13 and thought at the time it was a game like tag. He grabbed my penis and ran away laughing, like nothing had happened. I told him I didn't want to train with him anymore. That's when it started, the emotional abuse. He is a master manipulator and can twist anything in his favour. Having to work alongside him has been a nightmare. Those tweets spoken by our producers illustrate just a fraction of the allegations. On Twitter, wrestler Leah Owens shared her experience. 
I was single whenever I came into the wrestling scene. I did a lot of shit, but that did come about from certain individuals getting in contact with me. It got to the point that it was so bad that I disappeared from a certain risk company a while back because I stood up for myself. In professional wrestling, there is little to no regulation. There is no governing body. Some of those accused now work for WWE, far and away the long-term industry leader. A woman tweeted images of bruises on her lower body, adding, this is just the physical damage. She named the wrestler she said did that to her. WWE said, we take any allegation of this nature very seriously and are looking into the matter. BBC reporter Jonathan Savage reports that West Yorkshire police are, quote, carrying out initial inquiries, end quote, regarding some of the allegations within the British wrestling scene. West Yorkshire is a county in England. And as I record this, NWA has announced on Twitter that NWA Vice President David Lagana has resigned his position effective immediately following allegations made against him. NWA says that production of NWA content is temporarily halted pending a restructuring of executive management positions. NWA hadn't done any normal studio productions with in-ring programming since uh, the shutdown for COVID in March. They had been producing some secondary video content in the meantime. I would expect this story or the many stories to continue to develop as time goes on as uh, pro wrestling's inhumane culture is uh, unearthed here. As somebody who's been involved with independent wrestling since 2003, we clearly have a long way to go to have a wrestling world that's not just more welcoming, but safe, especially for female wrestlers and female wrestling fans. And not just the accused, but we all sharing that responsibility. It is a problem that runs from the top down. It starts with the people who have the power and the leadership in wrestling. But we all contribute toward creating and maintaining the culture that exists now. And as upsetting as days like this may be, hopefully it's days like this that get us a bit closer to a wrestling culture that is safer and more respectful of people of all kinds. In other news, on Monday, just as WWE Monday Night Raw was ending, WWE announced that a member of the audience who is a NXT developmental talent tested positive for COVID-19. The person was last on site at the WWE Performance Center in Orlando, Florida on June 9th, according to the statement. This resulted in tapings for Tuesday being canceled and postponed to Wednesday as W Talent submitted to COVID testing. No positive test results were reported, and taping is said to have resumed. This was the first time that W conducted COVID-19 testing. There have been conflicting reports whether or not fans who were allowed to attend tapings at the W Performance Center were prevented from wearing masks. However, on Thursday, Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings said that every person in the county must wear a mask. Presumably, that means while out in public, the order goes into effect on Saturday. Few, if anyone appearing on WTV lately, has appeared wearing a mask. Except for wrestling masks, I guess. Daily new cases of COVID-19 per capita in Florida now greatly exceed cases per day in the United States overall. 
daily new deaths per day per capita, however, in Florida lag behind the rest of the country. Cases in Florida in the trailing seven days are now almost twice as high as they were in the week prior. In the Florida counties of Duval County and Orange County, where AEW and WB run respectively, cases continue to climb. With cases per capita in Orange County, where Orlando is, now at about twice as high as those of Duval County, where AEW is. AEW reportedly continues to conduct COVID testing on its personnel. Meanwhile, in WB, Kevin Owens will not be participating in tapings going forward. He joins Sami Zayn and Roman Reigns, who have declined to participate as well. New Japan ran its first empty arena events this week, including New Japan Cup events. New Japan is scheduled to run Osaka Joe Hall in Osaka, Japan, on July 11th and 12th, with fans in attendance at a one-third capacity. Before then, though, Dragon Gate will run its first events with fans on July 4th and 5th in Kyoto, Japan. Previously, Dragon Gate had been running events with no fans in attendance. Dragon Gate released a number of rules for fans who attend. Among the rules, there will be temperature checks, people with symptoms should not attend, the number of seats that will be made available for each event will be decided in cooperation with venue management and will be handled within social distancing guidelines. The rules read that the spaces between seats will be wider than usual. Anyone with a temperature higher than 99.5 degrees will not be allowed entry into the venue. Cases per capita in Japan are some 150 times lower than they are currently in the United States. That data is sourced from ourworldanddata.org. And finally... We will move on to talk about the WWE lawsuit involving the pension fund that belongs to, I believe, the uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Who are they? Let's look again here. The City of Warren Police and Fire Retirement System. I believe they are out of Kansas City, Missouri. They are individually and on behalf of all others similarly situated. Individually on, and on behalf of all others similarly situated. Yes, it says that twice. They are the plaintiffs in this complaint versus World Wrestling Entertainment Inc Vincent K. McMahon George A. Berrios and Michelle Wilson the defendants they demand a jury trial you probably know who Vincent K. McMahon is but George Berrios and Michelle Wilson well since you're listening to WrestleNomics you probably know who they are too they are the former co-presidents of WWE a few things before we dive right into the complaint, the amended complaint. Uh, so first thing, this is not the first time that we have be, been aware of this lawsuit. There was an original complaint that came out uh, maybe a month or two ago. And that complaint didn't have as much research as this one does. This, this complaint appears to have interviewed quite a few people here. Um, uh, second thing, this is not the first time even in recent history, that WWE has faced a class action lawsuit filed uh, from shareholders. Uh, as we noted on Twitter in the WrestleNomics account, which you can follow at WrestleNomics, it's worthwhile going back to read the ruling on motions to dismiss from March 31st, 2016, when WWE was sued by a class action 
of investors over alleged misleading statements that the company made regarding its, uh, its ability to capture TV rights. And investors were suing WB over the idea that they had lost value in, their, in the shares that they held because of misleading statements making shareholders believe that the value of those shares would increase or would be worth more than they ended up being worth. Okay, and that was over statements regarding the 2014 U.S. TV rights negotiations, which came in uh, much lower than originally hyped by, by WB itself, including Vince McMahon. Uh, as we covered last week, actually, I think that was last week, Vince McMahon was out there on investor calls in 2013 telling one Bradley Saffalo, uh, who is an analyst on these conference calls, he, he, Vince told the analyst that you can put me in a hammerlock if we don't at least double our TV rights. WWE did not end up doubling its TV rights in that round. They ended up getting a 1.7x increase in their TV rights. Some had speculated that they would even get not just double, but maybe three times their prior deal in U.S. TV rights fees. So uh, quite a disappointment there. And you can go back and listen to the episode last week where we covered how that had a lot to do with the timing of the launch of the WB network. Um, of course, WB went on to get more than a 3x increase in its TV rights uh, in the following round, which just went into effect in October 2019. But anyway, uh, about this lawsuit, uh, I want to note too that uh, as the Wrestling Observer Newsletter put it uh, this week, WrestleNomics obtained record. Uh, we obtained this in, in, in a way that any, any journalist could. Although it is not free to get these documents from Pacer, no. No, you have to open up the bank to, to get the, this sort of, these scoops, this, this sort of documentation. It's not free. It costs about, about as much as a good cup of coffee does. So I don't know if the big wrestling news sites can, can swing that, can really uh, afford to invest that kind of money. I know it's asking a lot. This, uh, this wasn't even the first day that it was available uh, when it appeared on WrestleNomics on Twitter. Uh, it appeared on the 14th on the WrestleNomics Twitter account. It had been available probably since the 8th, uh, which is the day that it is dated. So out there for a good six days before we got our hands on it. But it's not as if uh, WrestleNomics has access to super secret special privileged information that no one else could get access to. Now, you too, wrestling journalists, can get access to this stuff if you know how to find it and you have a few dollars in your pocket. And did you know even that WB publishes its financial statements and its key performance indicators on a quarterly basis? You can look those things up at corporate.w.com. But anyway, you will be amazed to, to find out how much information is just out there on the internet for free that you could, if, if you were so inclined, you could write articles about this information that you can find for free. And I'm not just talking about tweets or Instagram posts. But I digress. So we're going to go through at least uh, the, the first section of this. I think it's very readable. And if you go to WrestleNomics on Twitter and you click on the pinned 
tweet at the top of the account right now, you'll find this entire 141-page document, the entire 141-page amended class action complaint. And page 2 through 10 is called Nature of the Action. And that is a very readable section. Um, the rest of the document goes through a lot of detail. In many ways, it repeats and says the same thing that I kind of already said in the Nature of Action section, just with a little bit more detail. So I think it's a good summary to just go through the Nature of Action section now. And I'm going to read at least parts of it here. So join me on this journey. So the Nature of the Action section starts. The lead plaintiff. The Firefighters Pension System of the City of Kansas City, Missouri Trust. They individually and on behalf of all others who are similarly situated. Now, I'm doing some asides here. So that basically means this is a class action lawsuit. It goes on. By their undersigned counsel, their lawyers. We hereby bring this consolidated amended class action complaint. Henceforth, the complaint against WWE, against CEO Vince McMahon, and, their, and the uh, former co-presidents, George Berrios. Michelle Wilson. The allegations are based on the lead plaintiff's personal knowledge as to its own actions and on information and belief as to all other matters. Such information and belief having been informed by the investigation conducted by and under the supervision of lead counsel, which includes a review of the U.S. Security and Exchanges Commission filings by WE, that is the SEC filings that we often talk about here on WrestleNomics. It goes on, securities analyst reports, which we often talk about here at WrestleNomics. So it's talking about the, the actual documents that W publishes, the SEC filings. And then it's talking about the analyst reports that are put out by you know, various uh, analyst firms, such as Needham, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, Guggenheim Securities, and so on. It goes on, and advisories about the company. I don't know what that means, but it goes on. Press releases and other public statements issued by the company including those as well, media reports about the company, interviews, which they appear to have done themselves, interviews with former employees of WB and others with knowledge of the matters herein, excuse me, matters alleged herein, and consultation with experts in the areas of loss, causation, and damages. I'm guessing that latter part, the uh, experts in areas of loss, causation, and damages just has to do with determining what the damages are to the the suing investors. Now, at the end of this sentence, there is a footnote, which is important. The footnote at the bottom of the page reads, confidential witnesses, henceforth CWs, will be identified herein by number. There are two of them. CW1, CW2. All CWs will be described in the masculine to protect their identities. So that's the other important part uh, we need to talk about here. I think I wanted to talk about it a minute ago, but we'll talk about it now. Uh, so this lawsuit, like I said, there's been other lawsuits in the past like this. The, the lawsuit that I, that I mentioned before that was dismissed in 2016 it was relate, related to statements that WB had made in 2014, uh, or at least around that time. Um, so this case uh, has a lot more drama and human interest than the normal uh, WB lawsuit situation. So a lot of times here on WrestleNomics and you know, sort of throughout the, uh, the history of the show, uh, in, in the time that I've been a part of it, we've talked about many different kinds of W lawsuits, whether that was the concussion lawsuit uh, and a lot of other things. And this this lawsuit in particular has um, a human interest story that a lot of the other 
more boring lawsuits do not have. That is, it, it has to do with what happened at the airport in Riyadh um, on or around October 31st, 2019, when WB personnel were apparently stranded or had some sort of travel issue. We'll get more, get more into that later. But they had some sort of travel issue that prevented them from leaving at the time that they expected to leave. And it was reported at the time by Dave Meltzer, maybe others, that there was some sort of disagreement with WWE and with the Saudi government to some degree that prevented uh, the plane from leaving when it was supposed to leave. Or at least the wrestlers believed that there was some sort of disagreement between WWE parties and Saudi government parties. Now, ultimately, what this lawsuit is about is about you know the, the plaintiffs alleging that WWE knew some information about the MENA TV deal, that is the Middle East-North Africa TV deal. Of course, WWE has TV deals, TV deals all over the world in various regions, especially the U.S., the U.K., and India. Those are their three biggest TV deals. But WWE also has TV deals in a number of regions around the world. One of them includes the Middle East-North Africa region, and previously WWE had had a deal with a network called OSN. Uh, that deal stopped. We'll talk about why. And W was trying to renegotiate a new deal with a different network called MBC. We'll talk more about that as well. But basically, the, the plaintiff is alleging that W knew that this deal wasn't going well, and they withheld that. And W shareholders were damaged because of W allegedly withholding that information. Meanwhile, Vince McMahon, George Barrows, and Michelle Wilson, who are named as defendants here, they made stock sales. And the plaintiffs want to allege that, that those executives made those stock sales while they knew that the value of the company was going to decrease. They had what's called non-public material information. And the plaintiffs want to allege that those executives made those sales in a, I don't know, non-ethical or possibly illegal way. And by the way, as you can tell, I'm not a lawyer. And if anybody uh, listening is a lawyer and would like to uh, give me some, some uh, uh, suggestions about how to interpret uh, the amended complaint and wants to read it, of course, they can. And I, and I hope that you will reach out and help help us all understand this case better. But I do think I have at least an okay handle of what's happening here, and I'll do my best to explain what's going on. But the complaint goes on. Lead counsel's investigation into the matters alleged herein is ongoing, and many relevant facts are known only to or are exclusively within the custody or control of the defendants. That is, a lot of the evidence that that we would need, the plaintiffs, the plaintiffs would need to prove this case, is in possession of WWE. I think that's what that means, and I think they're referring to, well, the, a lot of the things that we need to prove this case are WWE records. So, it goes on, uh, lead plaintiff believes that substantial additional evidentiary support will exist for the allegations set forth herein after a reasonable opportunity for discovery. And discovery is a thing that happens in lawsuits where uh, basically I believe it means a court uh, requires a party to uh, add certain information to the record in, in terms of documents or maybe emails or who knows. Uh, it goes on, on behalf of itself and the class it seeks to represent, the lead plaintiff alleges as follows. So maybe we will see... Uh, WB have to disclose some information that will be interesting or newsworthy as this goes on. Um, so now we're on to the nature of the action section, and it reads, it, all these paragraphs are numbered. So paragraph one begins, this is a federal securities class action on behalf of all persons and entities 
who or which purchased or otherwise or otherwise acquired the publicly traded securities of WB during the period from February 7th, 2019 through February 5th, 2020. So a period of uh, a little over a year, a year and two days. That is, this is called henceforth the class period. So this is the period of time, February 7th, 2019 to February 5th, 2020. Again, about a, a period of about a year and two days. This is the period that this lawsuit is concerned with. Okay, and it's a, that's the period, and uh, these parties were damaged thereby. The action is brought against WV and certain of its current and former officers, that is Vince, George, and Michelle, and directors for violations of the Security Exchange Act of 1934, and SEC Rule 10b-5 promulgated thereunder. Okay, and the paragraph 2, we're basically going to get into kind of a, a brief history of WWE. So it goes on. The WWE, and by the way, to the, uh, the, the lawyers who, who wrote this complaint, WWE is referred to throughout this complaint as the WWE. In other words, the World Wrestling Entertainment. Is that, is that what you're going to watch tonight? The World Wrestling Entertainment. Rather than just WWE. It's a peeve. Anyway, the WWE is a sports entertainment company primarily known for its brand of professional wrestling. In recent years, the company has transformed itself into more of a media company. That's important for their argument. Into more of a media company, generating considerable revenues from the production of original content, which it, distribu which it distributes to television providers around the world and on the company's own streaming network. Referring there, of course, to the, the WWE network. The company's growth and transformation into a media company, again, they, they, they want to pound in that this is a media company because they're, they're suing over what they call misleading statements related to a media business deal. Anyway, the company's growth and transformation into a media company has been fueled by the WWE's expansion internationally over the past number of years, also important. Part of this international expansion has included holding large-scale wrestling events overseas and increasing the revenues earned on licensing deals, that is TV deals, the company enters into with international television providers who buy the exclusive right to air original WWE content, including WWE's key television programs, Raw and SmackDown Live. It says uh, SmackDown Live. I think it's just branded SmackDown now, right, since it moved to Friday. But anyway, you can see them setting up. Uh, WWE is a company that's a media company, and they do, you know, an ever more important part of their business is selling these international TV deals. Okay, there's some truth to that. Uh, it, it doesn't say here that the U.S. TV deal is the most important TV deal by far. But it is true that international TV deals are important also. And it is true that TV revenue overall is the biggest piece of WWE revenue. And it's probably going to constitute over half of the company's revenue in this year of COVID-19. Moving on in paragraph four. Relevant here is the WWE's expansion into a key market the Middle East and North Africa region, the MENA region. The company took a significant step toward boosting the W's popularity in the region in 2014, when it entered into a five-year exclusive media rights agreement with the Orbit Showcase Network, OSN, pursuant to which OSN agreed to pay fees for the right to air W's original content on OSN. So in 2014, W and OSN made a deal so that OSN could could air Raw and SmackDown, and in fact, they even made a deal so OSN could distribute and help sell W Network subscriptions. So 
I think it's very similar to the deal that they have in Canada with Rogers there, where it's it's basically a, a linear pay channel, uh, the W Network is. Paragraph 4, a few years later, the company made further headway in the MENA region when it announced in March 2018 that it had signed a 10-year exclusive partnership with the Saudi General Sports Authority to hold large wrestling events in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And uh, our lives have never been the same, have they? Paragraph 6, although the partnership proved lucrative for WWE, I, I'm removing the, the the before WWE inherently. Although the partnership proved lucrative, it brought with it significant controversy. WWE was criticized heavily by the Western press leading up to and after the first event held pursuant to the partnership in April uh, 2018, known as the Greatest Royal Rumble, for agreeing to partner with the Saudi government despite the country's troubling human rights record, which was on display when it was revealed that WWE would not have its female talent participate in the event in accordance with Saudi law. Paragraph 7. Controversy was further amplified in the month leading up to the second live event pursuant to partnership, held on November 2nd, 2018, when world attention was captured by reports in October 2018 that the Saudi government was behind the disappearance and murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a frequent critic of the Saudi government. Paragraph 8. Despite the controversy and calls to cancel the November 2018 event, WWE held it anyway. Both events that year proved lucrative for the company, which reported record revenues for the full year and in 2018. Although the terms of the 10-year partnership were not disclosed, analysts estimated that the company generated between 70 and $90 million from these two events, a considerable portion of the WWE's all-time high $930.2 million total revenues for 2018. And I think that 70 to $90 million is a bit too low. Uh, the totally uncertified financial analysis that I've done, uh, I strongly believe that, uh, in particular, the, the two 2018 events were both worth about $50 million for a total of about $100 million. But anyway, uh, paragraph 9, heading into the class period, which begins on February 7, 2019, analysts were heavily focused on the lucrative Saudi partnership, but investor attention also was focused on a number of international media rights agreements that were nearing expiration and which the company had been assuring investors in months prior would be renewed on even more favorable terms. That is, they would get an increase in their TV rights deals. More specifically, it goes on, defendants told investors on June, or rather in June 2018, that the company expected revenue from existing and new content agreements to grow from $235 million in 2018 to $435 million in 2020. So here I think is one of uh, a number of paragraphs where the case is probably being overstated how important the what, what it says is analysts heavily focused on the lucrative Saudi partnership. Um, yes, the uh, analysts were focused on WWE's TV rights deals and they were focused on the lucrative uh, Saudi event partnership. They were focused on the, the TV rights deals, most especially uh, in uh, the UK and India. By 2019, the US deal is already done and announced. So the next two biggest deals are the UK and India. And the Middle East deal is maybe maybe the fourth biggest. And, and well, actually, as we'll see, it looks like W was trying to make it maybe the, the, the second or tied for the third biggest 
uh, the that is the MENA deal. And again, to be clear, whenever we talk about the Middle East or MENA or Middle East North Africa, we're talking about the same region of of WTV market, right? So it's the OSN was was the uh, the incumbent uh, TV partner, and as we'll see, NBC becomes a a possible partner in OSN's place. So paragraph ten. Analysts were therefore focused on the negotiation of these agreements, one of which was the renewal of the agreement with OSN, which was this, which was set to expire in late 2019 and which was estimated by analysts to generate an average annual value, an AAV, of between $15 million and $20 million for the company, with an estimated $25 to $30 million in revenue contributing to the agreement's final 12 months. What does that mean? So generally... TV rights contracts, at least in WE's case, and probably with live sports throughout, they they have an average annual value over a number of years, and the fees increase as time goes on. So WE gets a little bit of money in terms of payments at the beginning, and gradually those payments grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until the end of the contract where they get the biggest set of payments. So what this is saying here is that this this complaint is saying that analysts uh, uh, estimated that the value, the average annual value of the five-year deal with OSN was somewhere between $15 and $20 million. And the, the biggest portion, of course, is going to come in the last year of that deal. And analysts estimate that that would be worth $25 to $30 million. So again, to put this in, in some context, in some perspective, $25 to $30 million of revenue in a year, uh, compare that to W's overall revenue of $930 million in 2018. Uh, I think $960 million in 2019, right? WWE's uh, TV rights deal in the U.S. for Raw is $265 million, so way bigger. Uh, for, for SmackDown, $205 million. So to get some, some idea of, of what compares to 25 to 30. So it goes on. More importantly, however, it signaled more subscribers and a broader reach of WWE in the MENA region with continued growth in this important market. And to jump back again, I have no idea what the word subscribers means in this context. It's going to be used a few more times later on. I don't know if subscribers refers to WWE Network subscribers. I don't think so. It doesn't sound like it. You'll see, you'll see why I don't think that later. But it, maybe it refers to WWE Network subscribers. Maybe it refers to WWE TV viewers. Maybe it just refers to the total coverage or the total possible audience. In any case... Uh, more importantly, however, it signaled more subscribers and a broader reach for WWE in the MENA region with continued growth in this important market. At the start of the class period, the defendants, WWE, assured investors that they were working on the quote-unquote renewal of this agreement and that its renewal, as well as the renewal of other agreements in other regions, was critical to the company to be able to meet its full year 2019 adjusted operating income before depreciation and amortization guidance of $200 million. What does that mean? Basically, it's saying uh, we, the plaintiffs, believe that the MENA TV deal, the renegotiation of it, was so important that it was critical to WWE for meeting its projection of $200 million of adjusted OEBA. What's adjusted OEBA? It's just basically think, just think of it as a measure of profit. Um, anytime we bring up adjusted OEBA, it's, it's a non-GAAP measure, a non-generally accepted accounting principle measure of profit. It's a... It's a metric that WWE prefers. Uh, basically, it's just a, a form of profit, ruling out some things that WWE just doesn't want to measure. WWE's not the only company that does this. It's kind of shady. 
but on the other hand, not that unusual. Anyway, the plaintiffs are saying that, you know, the MENA deal was critical to WE meeting its profit goals, its profit projections, which in told investors that they should expect WE to meet. Paragraph 11. Unbeknownst to the investors, however, defendants, which are WE, knew or deliberately reckless and not knowing months before the class period that the agreement with OSN would not be renewed. In fact, a WE representative who is the self-described... In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy slab packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs. And it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Principal point of contact with OSN has since admitted that OSN informed WWE in November 2018 via a letter from its general counsel, its lawyers, that OSN intended to exit its sports content business and conclude its sports coverage in early 2019. Uh, this individual who, by the way, uh, I believe this individual is named later on in, in a part of a lawsuit that we're not going to read right now. I believe this is a person who's, whose name uh, eludes me, who is now a, a general manager of the UK region for WB, but who, who happens to be working for OSN at this time. 
anyway, the paragraph goes on. This individual admits further that on December 18, 2018, OSN NWB entered into a settlement agreement pursuant to which OSN and WWE agreed to the early termination of their media rights agreement, effective March 31st, 2019. This admission is corroborated by another W representative who worked at OSN through March 2019. So what does that mean? Oh, it's clear that you know, WWE and, uh, and OSN came to an agreement that they would end the, the deal early because OSN was deciding to no longer cover sports. Now, the plaintiff's lawyer have a problem with that because, as paragraph 12 says, crucially, defendants, WWE, did not inform the market of this significant development for months, instead telling investors that WWE was working on renewing the MENA region media rights agreement, that is the OSN agreement, and that they would not otherwise comment on the status of the quote-unquote renewal negotiations. In the meantime, on March 27, 2019, while in possession of this non-public information that the OSN deal would not be renewed. Defendant Vince McMahon sold 3.2 million shares of W stock for proceeds worth more than $261 million just days before the close of the company's disappointing 2019 first quarter, which ends March 31st, 2019. Now let's pause there. That money was probably used by Vince McMahon to support the XFL. The implication maybe here by the plaintiff is that Vince knew that the, the, the deal was, was not good and the deal was being ended and they didn't disclose it to the market. Meanwhile, the CEO made a stock sale. Now, that it's hard to know whether that was a motivation or not, but probably a motivation was that Vince McMahon was funding the XFL with this money, with the, the proceeds of his huge stock sales. It goes on. When the company finally announced those disappointing results on April 25th, 2019, WWE provided lower-than-expected guidance for quarter two, uh, 2019, which reflected the still-unknown news, still not reported to the market, that the company, WWE, would no longer be receiving revenues associated with the OSN agreement that expired on March 31st. On this news, WWE stock price fell $13.12 per share, or 13%, to a close of $85 per share on, March, or on April 25th, on unusually high volume of more than 10,000, excuse me, 10 million shares traded. However, the defendants, who are WWE, continued to conceal that the OSN agreement had expired and thus that there, there was no agreement to quote unquote renew. And uh, so, referring to the Q1 report there on April 25th, uh, when the stock price fell by 13%, this is this is where WWE is at you know, near its all-time high, nearly $100 million, $100 per share, and uh, it falls down to 85 And now today, it's worth about half of that. The market closing today for WWE shares at $45. And it's important, too, it's an important point that the plaintiffs raised, too, that WWE uh, not only was Q1 disappointing, but WWE lowered its projections for Q2 the following quarter. Uh, moving on to paragraph 14, then, then it's time for the Q2 report. On July 25th, it says, it was not until July 25th, 2019 that the company, WWE, finally acknowledged that the OSN agreement had ended. But the defendants attempted to blunt the impact of this surprising news by simultaneously disclosing that the company was then in negotiations with the Saudi government for a media rights agreement for the MENA region to assuage concerns that the deal would, would take time and might not get done by the end of 2019, which was necessary for the company to meet its full year 2019 OEBA guidance, its profit guidance, 
Defendants WB told investors that the new deal with the Saudis would complete, quote-unquote, very soon, and that they already had an agreement, quote, in principle. So here's where we get into the NBC stuff. NBC is a TV network that is uh, majority-owned by the Saudi government. And later in, in the lawsuit, not in this section that we're reading from, but, but later in the lawsuit, uh, it, it mentions a story about how the original owner of NBC, who, who is not the Saudi government, but a, a, a UAE businessman, a businessman from the United Arab Emirates, uh, he was part of the 2017 shakedown at the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, which is a, corrupt, is a crackdown supposedly on corruption that was administered by Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, where basically MBS uh, put a lot of businessmen into the into this lavish hotel and wouldn't allow them to leave so he could crack down on corruption. So the owner of the NBC TV network was among those who was essentially jailed or imprisoned in, in the Ritz-Carlton for a time. And as a result of his release, or as a condition probably of his release, he gave 60% of the ownership of NBC to the Saudi government. Yeah, just moving ahead here, this is Way down on page 60, where it gets into more detail here, the chairman of NBC, Walid al-Ibrahim, and other executives and board members were arrested and detained in November 2017 as part of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's crackdown on systematic corruption. After 83 days, Ibrahim was released, but not without a price. As part of the release, Saudi authorities obtained 60% ownership stake in NBC. But anyway, so again, we have the situation where W does reveal that the OSN deal has ended, ended earlier than it expected it to, which allegedly WB knew back in November or December. Now here we are in July, and WB is telling investors for the first time about this, that the, the deal is done. I, I want to say that at the time, I saw something on Reddit that, that suggested or said, you know, take, take whatever credibility that that's worth for you. I saw it on Reddit. But I think I saw something maybe about in April that said that the deal... Uh, had had expired or ended early, and I think that was being, you know, chat chatted about out there because W broadcasts uh, had no longer been been broadcast uh, by OSN, so so consumers viewers out there were aware of that. Uh, in, in a sense, maybe the market could have been aware of that too. Maybe there could have been a media report uh, about that. I don't know if there was or not, but anyway. There, for the first time, you got to be uh, executives saying, you know, people on the conference call, Barrios or whomever, uh, saying so, saying that that's the case. But that they've got a, a deal with the Saudi government, a media deal with the Saudi government that they have an agreement to in principle, supposedly. So, paragraph 15. But this, too, was not true. At the same time statements were made, the relationship between the WB and the Saudi government was deteriorating, in part because of payments the Saudis were delayed in making, in connection with live events held in 2018, as well as due to controversies associated with those events. Moreover, according to a confidential witness, CW, WB and the Saudi government were still very far apart in negotiations on a media rights deal for the media region in, in fall 2019. Thus, it was misleading to say that an agreement in principle had been reached by the parties months earlier in July, and defendants knew, as WB knew, or were deliberately reckless in disregarding, that any new media rights deal for the media region would not get done in 2019. So there's the plaintiff saying that uh, 
the relationship was deteriorating uh, in part because of the payments that the Saudis were supposed to make for the big events. And that, that is apparent when it comes to the events that happened in 2019. That is not uh, as apparent, at least, in the, when it comes to the events in 2018. When you look at the, the quarterly reports and you look at the accounts receivable line for WB in in 2019, you see that there is an account receivable line that is way bigger than it would be normally, and you see the percentage that W reports that belongs to the largest customer within the accounts receivable, and you do the math, and that comes out to over $60 million. Now, if you do the same thing for 2018, you get the biggest customer owing WB $24 to $27 million, not the $50 million or $60 million that the Saudi government would owe WB for a major event. So not sure what the plaintiff's talking about there when it comes to 2018, but that, that does seem to be apparent for 2019. So moving on, now we get to the part where it looks like the plaintiff has done some interviews, some firsthand research. Paragraph 16, an employee of the Middle East Broadcasting Center, MBC, which is controlled by the Saudi government, confirms that WB and MBC could not agree on basic assumptions of a proposed TV deal. This confidential witness, referred to herein as CW1, and then there's a footnote here at the bottom of the page. It says, at CW1's request, due to potential safety and retaliatory concerns expressed by CW1, lead plaintiff has removed some identifying details about CW1's employment at NBC during the relative time frame. Lead plaintiff believes that the details of the responsibilities of CW1 contained herein are sufficient to satisfy the requirements of the PSLRA. However, lead plaintiff can provide additional specificity, including CW1's exact title to the court, through an in-camera submission. So what's going on there? In reverse order, in-camera submission just means it would be in private with the judge and not a part of the public record. It does not mean that it will be recorded with a camera. So apparently this confidential witness believes that uh, uh, there may be potential safety and retaliatory concerns. This is what the CW1 expressed. So, I don't know, maybe that this is just my speculation that maybe uh, you're working for NBC, which is owned by the Saudi government, and maybe there would be some retaliatory action. Anyway, back to the main text. This confidential witness, uh, referred to herein as confidential witness, one explained that he worked on a feasibility study when he joined NBC in fall 2019, which had begun at some point before his hiring, on the possibility of a broadcast partnership between WWE and NBC. The confidential witness recalled that WWE had wildly unreasonable expectations of the revenue it expected from a potential broadcast partner. It, being WWE, proposed an $80 million annual license fee for its projection of 100 million plus quote-unquote OTT subscribers, which were based on the large number of OSN subscribers who watched WWE. And again, uh, lots of impact there. I I don't know what OTT subscribers, it sounds like W Network subscribers, but 100 million plus is, you know, uh, almost 100 million times the global subscriber base of the W Network. So I, I, that maybe OSN had 100 million um, households. I don't know. Another thing to unpack is W was asking reportedly, according to this, uh, this complaint and according to this, uh, this confidential witness, $80 million in an annual license fee, an average annual value of $80 million would make the Middle East, North Africa region for WB. It's number two, uh, maybe tied for number two with India in terms of the value of the TV deal. It would be tied probably with India, I 
think they have about the same value, uh, $80 million, uh, over the course of five years. Okay, well behind the $470 million on average per year in the U.S. That's if NBC accepted those terms, which they don't. Anyway, moving on, paragraph 17, the confidential witness called this audience estimate optimistic and confirmed that according to his research and analysis, NBC projected only 6.5 million W subscribers at most. According to the confidential witness, W rejected this low subscriber figure. So NBC raised the estimate somewhat, first to 10 million to be cooperative, and then finally to 15 million. But this was only to please WB, not because NBC felt the projections were realistic. WB then reduced its licensing fee ask to $50 million. And that, okay, I just checked. So it is $50 million would tie the value of the current India TV deal. So $80 million would be well in excess. So I guess W's initial offer, if it was accepted, would have put the MENA region as its number two TV market. Can you imagine? But anyway, I don't know. Maybe they just thought that because they were getting such a huge deal from the Saudi government for the, the event deal, $50 million per event, maybe they could get a huge overpayment for a TV deal as well. Anyway, moving on. Uh, however, NBC felt it could not go above $14.5 million. The confidential witness was later informed that NBC and WWE concluded their negotiations due to a difference in quote-unquote numbers. Paragraph 18. On October 31st, 2019, that's right, Halloween, the defendants, WWE, announced WWE's third quarter 2019 financial results and lowered its full year 2019 adjusted EBITDA, that is its profit guidance, to a $180 million to $190 million figure due to a, quote, delay in completing a previously contemplated agreement in the MENA region. And here we got WWE saying that there is a delay when the plaintiff here is alleging, according to its confidential witness, who is an employee with NBC, according to the plaintiffs and that confidential witness, the deal had been concluded or the negotiations had been concluded and that the negotiations were not ongoing. And Barrios is saying on the call that there's a delay. It continues, but defendants continued to falsely assure the market that WV and the Saudi government were still working on finalizing a media rights deal for the MENA region. Paragraph 19, just hours after the October 31 earnings call, WB held a live event in Saudi Arabia, the Crown Jewel, 2019. Following the event, reports emerged revealing that the relationship between WB and the Saudi government was on thin ice. Specifically, numerous WB wrestlers and representatives noted on social media that they were being detained in Saudi Arabia, their flights not allowed to take off from the airport. It was reported that defendant McMahon cut the live feed to the October 31 Crown Jewel event in response to payments the Saudi government was delayed in making in connection with prior events. And that the Crown Prince retaliated by refusing to let WWE representatives leave the country, holding them for as much as six hours. So, we do know that payments were delayed. It is pretty apparent that payments were delayed, uh, according to WWE's quarterly reports. The payment for the June Super Showdown 2019 event was delayed. And here's where we'll get into how the, the plaintiff has, has gotten an interview with a former W wrestler who's going to largely corroborate the reports that were made at the time. So paragraph 20, a former W wrestler who performed for the company from 2012 to April 2020 
and who participated in the October 31, 2019 Crown Jewel event, confirms the substance of the media reports. This individual, referred to herein as Confidential Witness 2, explained that following the Crown Jewel event, he along with other W personnel were scheduled to leave King Fahd International Stadium in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where the event was held, and head to the to a private airport to take a charter plane to Buffalo, New York for WWE SmackDown, uh, which was scheduled for that the next night. Paragraph 21, Confidential Witness 2 recalled that he was initially told the charter flight he was scheduled to leave on was delayed because the plane needed to be pulled around. After they boarded, they were removed from the plane after 20 to 30 minutes. Confidential Witness 2 explained that he spoke with a stewardess on the flight about the delay, who told him that, quote, it seems someone doesn't want us to leave the country, end quote. Confidential Witness 2 further explained that the pilot sounded distressed when he informed the passengers that the flight was unable to take off. Confidential Witness 2 recalled that then they were told it was because of mechanical issues, but he recalled seeing a quote-unquote ton of guards wearing black quote-unquote militia attire and wearing guns that were blocking their exit and quote staring at the wrestlers, end quote. Paragraph 22, Confidential Witness 2 became aware that something was wrong and explained that a number of the other personnel were referring to the event as a quote-unquote hostage situation. Confidential Witness 2 explained that he asked the Senior Director of Talent Relations, Mark Carano, about what was going on, and that Carano told him that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and McMahon had gotten into an argument over late payments in connection with the June 7, 2019 Super Showdown event. Carano also informed Confidential Witness 2 that McMahon had cut the live feed for the Crown Jewel event and that this had made the Crown Prince, quote, very mad, end quote. So this is along the lines of what media reports had been at the time. And this is coming from a wrestler who, according to this document, was released or no longer wrestles for WB as of April 2020, began wrestling for the company in 2012. And there's a, a, a bit of specific news here in that this confidential witness says that he talked to Mark Carano, the senior director of talent relations. Am I getting his, his title right? Senior director of talent relations, Mark Carano. And that is supposedly what Mark Carano told him is that Vince McMahon and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia had an argument. Moving on to paragraph 23. Media reports similarly revealed that the Saudi government had failed to make numerous payments on time and that Defendant McMahon and the Crown Prince's dispute was what caused the flight delays, not a mechanical issue as the company publicly stated. WWE's chief accounting officer has also since admitted that the Saudi government was delayed in making a $60 million payment in connection with the June 7 event and has also been delayed making smaller but still considerably sized payments in connection with the 2018 and 2019 events held in that country. So that would make sense in accordance with what I see in the SEC filing, specifically quarterly reports. There could have been, based on the numbers we see in the accounts receivable line and based on the sentences that explain the accounts receivable line, there could have been smaller delayed payments related to the 2018 events and larger, there certainly seem to be larger delayed payments related to the 2019 events held in Saudi Arabia. And that's interesting that the plaintiff apparently interviewed uh, W's chief accounting officer, who is Mark Kowal, because uh, I'm not aware of him saying that anywhere else, uh, in public anyway. Paragraph 24, in reaction to these disclosures, I believe they're referring to the dis disclosures 
from W's earnings report that also happened on the same day on, on Halloween. There was a crown jewel event in Saudi Arabia and there was a earnings report uh, on the same day. So in the morning, there was a earnings report and then in the afternoon, and I'm talking U.S. Eastern time, there was a uh, crown jewel event. And then later on in the day, there was the flight delay. Anyway, paragraph 24, in reaction to these disclosures, W stock price fell $10.40 per share or 15.65% to a close at $56.04 per share on October 31st on unusually high volume of more than 7.5 million shares traded. So that's the plaintiff laying out that, look, the stock price fell by 15.65%. That's important for making the case that the plaintiffs, the shareholders, were damaged. Paragraph 25, additional details of defendant's fraud were revealed on January 30th, 2020, when W issued a press release announcing that two of its most senior and longest-serving executives, defendants Barrios and Wilson, abruptly left the company. The company also pre-announced that it expected its full-year adjusted OEBDA, again, its profit, uh, to be approximately $180 million, the lower end of its already lowered guidance range. Paragraph 26, on this news, W stock price fell $13.42 per share or 21.5% to close at $48.88 per share on January 31st, the following day, on unusually high volume of more than 19.4 million shares traded. And that is definitely true that following W's press release that Barrios and Wilson were out and that the adjusted EBITDA projection would be on the lower end of the range, the results will be on the lower end of the range for W's profit for the year. The stock price fell quite a bit. Now, I would argue that the majority of that decrease in, in stock price, certainly in that instance, had less to do, much less to do with a MENA TV rights deal than it did with the uncertainty that fell from the co-presidents leaving the company. And the, the stock price falling overall um, is partly related to the MENA TV rights deal not happening in the time that a lot of investors expected it to happen. But a lot of the, the loss in value for the stock price, in, in my estimation, is that the UK TV rights deal came well under what many speculated it would. It looks like the, the move from Sky in the UK to BT Sport was maybe a lateral movement in terms of compensation, maybe a step down. It's hard, to, it's hard to say. There isn't a public report saying what the value of the deal was. And secondly, there was a lot of speculation earlier on about how valuable the India deal would be. Maybe it would be a, a 2x increase, maybe a 2.5x increase. And reports are, at least from sportsbusiness.com, the sports media intelligence website, that the W's, W's deal, new deal with India, with Sony, is worth a 1.8x increase on its previous deal. And maybe add in the fact that W's engagement metrics uh, were not doing as well as W had hoped. Event ticket sales were down. W network subscribers were down. Anyway, so moving on to paragraph 27, where we start to talk about the, the Q4 and full year 2019 reports. Paragraph 27 reads, but defendants did not reveal the full truth until a few days later on February 6, 2020, when W confirmed that the company had achieved just $180 million in adjusted OEBDA 
for 2019 due to the failure to complete the media dis- distribution agreement with the Saudis. The company also announced that its guidance for 2020 did not include any revenues related to a media rights deal in MENA, meaning defendants were acknowledging that a deal with the Saudi government would not even be completed in 2020, if at all. And that is true. And it, it sounded like from that earnings report and that conference call that uh, WWE was not expecting any MENA TV rights money through the duration of 2020. This is all pre-COVID, too, by the way. This is February 6th. And let's just jump ahead a bit into much later in this amended complaint, where we get some insight, at least according to the plaintiff, about why the Saudis might not have had an incentive to make a deal with WWE. Uh, actually, paragraph 184 reads, One reality that has come to light since February 2020 is that the Saudi government has little incentive to enter into a media rights agreement with WWE, considering the Saudi government purportedly backs a local pirate television and streaming service. Indeed, a report by the World Trade Organization has recently surfaced that, quote, firmly establishes that the Saudi government is behind Be Out Q, which is a pirate satellite TV and streaming service that offers legal access to sporting events. Since its inception in 2017, Be Out Q illegally transmitted at least 10 encrypted channels via the Riyadh-based satellite provider ArabSat, and sold set-top boxes across Saudi Arabia and other Arab-speaking countries. The stolen content on these channels included all the major international football competitions, as well as other major sports such as tennis, NFL, NBA, Formula One, Olympics, and WWE. So there we have, according to the research of the plaintiff, that the Saudis were not incentivized to make such a deal because they're already backing a pirate company. So in, in other words, people can already watch apparently, uh, allegedly, people can already watch WWE through a pirate service. So why should the Saudi government, by the way, the Saudi government allegedly backs this pirate service, so why should the Saudi government pay for broadcast rights to broadcast W programming? Back to paragraph 28. On this news, WWE's stock price, not the news of the the pirate service, that's not really been uh, anything that I was aware of until reading this document. But on the news of the earnings report, WWE stock price fell another $4.5 or 9% to close at $44.5, just slightly above where it is today. Indeed, the price of WWE stock plummeted from a class period high of more than $100 per share, just barely $100 per share, by the way, but of more than $100 per share to as low as $40.24 per share on February 6th, representing a stunning 60% per share price decline. Paragraph 29, moreover, unbeknownst to investors during the class period, defendants McMahon, Barrios, and Wilson had been heavily selling WWE stock in unusual and suspicious amounts, totaling more than $280 million. Defendant McMahon's stock sales amounted to an increase of more than 1,000% during the class period, from $22.9 million during the control period to $261 million during the class period, while in possession of material non-public information regarding, among other things, the early termination of the company's media rights agreement in its MENA region, which was known in November 2018, delays in finding and finalizing an agreement with a new media rights partner in the MENA region, and growing tensions among WWE and the Saudis over late payments for live events. And the last paragraph that we'll read here, paragraph 30, outside investors were not so fortunate. 
suffering hundreds of millions of dollars in losses and economic damages as the price of W stock collapsed when the truth finally began to be revealed over time. So when it comes to the trades of Vince, George Barrios, and Michelle Wilson, what's what did they actually do? Let's take a look at the actual stock sales that they made. And I realize that we're going well over the one hour limit. So I apologize. Unless I've truncated the silence down and it's, it's still under an hour for you, in which case everything's great. But anyway, I would say that the stock sales activity of Vince McMahon during the class period, which is almost completely 2019, is not that unusual. And I'm not sure what they're referring to by the control period here, where supposedly he sold only two, you know, $23 million worth of stock. Because if we look in the years of 2016, 17, 18, and 19, Vince McMahon sold over 3 million shares in three out of four of those years. In 2016, he sold 3.7 million shares. In 2017, he sold 3.3 million shares. In 2018, he only sold 300,000 shares. And in 2019, he did sell 3.2 million shares. And by the way, this is why Vince, George, and Michelle are named as defendants here, along with WB as a company. So let's look at uh, George. Now, it's important to remember that according to the plaintiff's research, OSN and WB entered into a settlement agreement on December 18th, 2018. So presumably that's the day that executives might know that the OSN deal is no more and isn't going to be renewed. And in fact, it's going to expire on March 31st. So December 18th, 2018. So as it turns out, some of the George Barrio sales were made on November 27th. And I seem to recall there's a, a stock sale program or stock sale plan that George Barrios had started maybe around that time. He does make sales on December 27th and then again on January 28th and then again on February 27th and July 22nd. That's into 2019. So a possible preview of what WB's defense will be here, or, I don't know, George Barrios' defense will be. In the case of Michelle Wilson, she made sales uh, each year in August, starting in 2016, uh, continuing on in August 2017, and again in 2019. So there seems to be some sort of regular stock sale behavior for Michelle Wilson. Although it is true that the 2019 sale was quite a bit larger than her two sales the prior year. In 2019, she did sell over 150,000 shares, whereas in 17, she sold 55,000 shares. And in 2016, she sold 40,000 shares. And in fact, this goes back even further for her. Thir 2013, 14, and 15, she also made sales in August each year. So in general, as far as the plaintiffs go, it seems that they're overstating their case a bit. Um, they're not uh, uh, bringing up how important the UK and India deals were um, or the disappointing performance in W Network subscribers. And as far as the insider trading goes, uh, when people hear the phrase insider trading, they think of some sort of illegal action. And, and a lot of times insider trading is when, let's say, a person has some who is not a, a person who works for the, the company. Some, somebody who's outside gets a gets some inside information from someone and makes a stock transaction because of it. And I, I just don't have the background of knowledge to know at what point 
somebody inside the company who's obviously allowed to make sales. It's part of their compensation. And apparently, W and other companies' employees are making sales all the time. And I just don't know under what conditions a insider trade becomes illegal or legally liable in a case like this. Or if it's the case that if you can prove that the sale was made because of it was motivated by some sort of non-public material information, well, I just don't know how you prove that that's what motivated the sale. So I would expect to see a defense come out from WWE soon. And in fact, Jerry McDivitt of KL Gates, WWE's longtime attorney and defender, WWE's outside counsel, has made a comment to Forbes in an article written by Alfred Kanawa. McDivitt says, in typical McDivitt fashion, these false allegations were originally made in two suits filed by two different law firms. After the court appointed a third firm to be lead counsel, WWE provided all three firms with, spe with specific detailed facts from the persons with actual knowledge of the situation, including the phony allegations about the plane. The first two law firms then dropped their lawsuits to avoid sanction motions, but the third firm chose to ignore the specific facts they had been provided and instead cited an unnamed disgruntled former wrestler with no knowledge of the facts. WWE is preparing its response to the lawsuit and will be moving to have it dismissed. End quote. Thanks, Jerry. So that's all I have for today. Again, if you want to read the full complaint, all 141 pages, you can go to WrestleOmics on Twitter. It is the pinned tweet on the profile. A little known fact, I made a trip to Wegmans in the middle of this report. And I did not actually on this occasion, but I have on previous occasions as a sort of tradition lately on my pandemic grocery shopping trips. I have been re-listening to old episodes of WrestleMonics Radio in particular, the episodes where we, where we uh, review a full-year annual report for WWE. So that would be like the, the early February of a given year, just to see what our, our thoughts were about the year that had just passed and about all the WWE filings that we had just received covering the previous 12 months. You hear things like stories from Mookie about having uh, debates with various financial analysts who are convinced that it, it, in 2015 WWE is going to have 2 million paid subscribers far more than they ended up with following Wrestlemania so it's just very interesting to see what, what our thoughts were uh, back in years like 2015, 2016 about what the years to come would bring these frightening, dystopic TV rights fees saturated times that we live in today you can, of course, re-listen to those episodes yourself if you were so possessed. They are there in the archives. If you want to read any of my recent written work or find a load of resources on the business of professional wrestling, go to WrestleNomics.com. Again, the Twitter is at WrestleNomics, or you can follow me at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to you next time.